So I'm pleased to be back here at Spirit Rock after uh, the completion of the retreat in Yucca Valley that just ended uh, yesterday. Um, it was a, quite a wonderful retreat. And I, I understand that uh, Lama Zachuji was here last week. Is that right? So you've got that, those teachings. Um, again, this evening will be shared um, between myself and my good friend and very respected teacher, uh, colleague, scholar, um, Stephen Batchelder. And I know he'll speak somewhat from this book, Verses from the Center, A Buddhist Vision of the Sublime, which are his poetic translations of the teachings of Nagarjuna. And Stephen has been uh, a monk um, for quite a long time in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition under Geshe Raptan. Um, he's also studied extensively in the Zen tradition, especially in the Korean Zen and some of the most authentic and um, demanding of the Korean Zen uh, traditions and studied Vipassana. He's a kind of three-yana sort of guy, I think, <laughs> done them all. Um, an author of many, many books on Buddhist teachings and practice, a very wonderful translation of uh, the Bodhisattva's Way by Shantideva. Um, a history of Buddhism in um, the West, starting at the time of the Buddhist contact with the Greeks in more than 2,000 years ago, called Awakening of the West. Um, a book a few years ago called Buddhism Without Beliefs, understanding the basic Buddhist teachings without adding a lot of beliefs on top. And he's also the founder of many things, including the Sharpam Buddhist College in England, or I guess it's called that. Is that right? It's called the Sharpen College for Buddhist Studies. Ah, thank you. Let's be more precise about this. <laughs> <laughs> to which you're all invited. <laughs> so I'm very pleased to have you here. Thank you. And... Um, I told Stephen that I might take uh, 10 or 15 minutes to do a bit of teaching and then let him come in as he might after that with his own translation and teachings and so forth and then maybe we'll dialogue back and forth. The fundamental um, principle that underlies all of Buddhist practice and teaching is the possibility that for us as human beings, um, this heart and mind that with which we experience the world can either be entangled in greed, in fear, in prejudice, in uh, confusion, um, in wanting, uh, in... Uh, you know what entangled's like. <laughs> in relationship, in all kinds of ways. Or it also can be free. So the Buddha said that just as the four great oceans have but one taste, the taste of freedom, or taste of salt, rather, so all the teachings of the Buddha have but one taste, which is the taste of liberation or freedom. And another verse that's similar to that from the earliest teachings of the Buddha says, thus the purpose 
of living a holy life or a sacred life does not consist of acquiring good deeds or honor or fame or even virtue or stillness or insight, not even insight, but that unshakable deliverance of heart, the sure heart's release, this and this alone is the purpose for living the life of the Dharma, a life of truth. If you take the story of the Buddha, the myth, if you will, of the Buddha's awakening, there was the evening where the Buddha sat underneath the tree of enlightenment. In the face of all the forces of fear and greed and confusion that overwhelm us individually in our world at times, he sat in the midst of all of that and discovered in this beautiful and mysterious way um, that it was possible to be free in spite of all those forces and experiences. And when he discovered that freedom, it said he smiled. And there's tremendous joy, and the devas and the angels rained down flowers, and even the bullfrogs and the worms were singing, and everybody had a very good day. Um, and what he awakened to, um, as it's passed down to us, is a reality that is timeless, ever-present, unborn, um, that is really the truth of this existence within which we live that we've forgotten. He awoke to a freedom of heart and spirit that is possible for every human being, that is your own true nature or Buddha nature. Now, after that awakening, he still had the same body, the same senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, skin, touch, the same thoughts, images. He ate and slept and waked and walked just like everybody else, but he was liberated or enlightened. So this awakening or this enlightenment doesn't mean or didn't mean that he was somebody else in terms of the senses or that some, something had changed about the body or the senses, the world within which he acted and lived. <coughs> but rather, there was a fundamental shift of identity. And this is really the big mystery, isn't it? Who are we, really? How did we get into this body? Well, who were you before you were born in this body? asks one Zen koan. And for the Buddha there, in this awakening, there was this profound and fundamental shift of identity from that which was limited and fearful, the body of fear, to that which is luminous or timeless. Again, a verse from the Buddha. He says, this mind is luminous, brightly shining, but it becomes colored by the attachments that visit it. Haven't you noticed? This unwise people do not understand, and say that so they do not purify or cultivate or awaken to the nature of mind. This mind and heart is luminous by nature, brightly shining. When it is free of attachments and grasping that visit it, and thus the follower of the way understands this, and for them there is the path to the freedom of mind.
when we touch freedom in ourselves, when we have a moment where we're caught in something in the world, and all of a sudden you know that moment, you realize, oh, I was really caught in that. And then it's as if a bubble pops, and you realize, oh, there's so much more to it. The possibility of letting go, of forgiveness, of not clinging, of spaciousness. Any moment that we touch freedom is both joyful for us, and it also brings a kind of compassion when you see all the others around who are caught in the way that you have been. And this happened to the Buddha. He discovered this wonderful sense of freedom of heart and mind. And then he began to weep tears for all those who were still caught in their fears, in their confusions. And so he went out to communicate that it was possible to be free. And to communicate this freedom not as a particular thought or philosophy or idea or sense, sense experience or even state of mind, but of a reality of the heart and mind that is possible in all the changing states of our experience. How to communicate this was really the next step for the awakened one, the blessed one, for the Buddha, as it is for each of us as we awaken. One way it gets communicated is by presence. We, we're contagious to one another, as you know. Love is contagious as hate is contagious. So I think about Thich Nhat Hanh when he came to Spirit Rock the last time and there were two or three thousand people out on the hillside um, meditating and listening to teachings and chanting and so forth. And then it was time for Thich Nhat Hanh to come out. Thich Nhat Hanh had been resting quietly and kind of preparing himself. And then he walked up the road to where these two or three thousand people were sitting, and there was some stir, oh, Thich Nhat Hanh is coming. You know, people were here. It was also, it was a beautiful, sunny day, and there was some social energy. And he walked down the road so slowly, and so it seemed so mindfully, and walked up and took a drink of water and sat down and pinned on the microphone and, and made a bow with such presence, with such a quality of presence. He invited people to open an orange or eat an apple, and it was as if you never saw anyone eat a piece of fruit before. It was so alive. And then the orange in your hand became that alive. So one way in which this is communicated is by from, from the heart of one being to another, by that kind of presence this sense that we actually can be alive in any moment and free. The other way it's communicated, or another way, is through words. And the Buddhist tradition, like most long, great spiritual traditions, has a lot of words, volumes and volumes of people's <laughs> words. The initial words, many of them, are actually poetical, which is part of what Stephen tries to bring back to this great teacher, Nagarjuna. Um, and Nagarjuna, you won't hear this metaphor ever before and maybe never again, Stephen. Um, but Nagarjuna was a little bit like <laughs> Elvis Presley. <laughs> in that there, there grew to be a kind of staid and, and conservative way of words of so the Buddha said this and the Buddha did that. 
and then the guardian came along before all the other school schools of buddhism and he swiveled his hips and he said you know this is not about these words in these teachings this is something that's really alive and transformed um, what had become somewhat scholarly and rigid <laughs> poetry does that it's really what poetry is the language that points and says the moon is up look at the moon it's the the language of immediacy you can't get the news from poetry said someone but men and women die every day for lack of what is found there. There's some source of the heart that's found in poetry. So a couple of early Buddhist poems. These are the very earliest and the most archaic of the Pali, Sanskrit language that, that Buddhist teachings are preserved. This is from the Sutta Nibhata, the earliest of all teachings. Um, and this is from my Max Mueller 1881 translation. The Victorians actually had, sometimes they hit the language mm -hmm. right. So here's the Buddha wandering around India thinking, now how am I going to tell people that they can be happy and free? And so he comes up to a river where there's some people there. And he's, it's a little dialogue. He says, I've, uh, with a herdsman. And he kind of greets this person and the herdsman begins. He says, I've boiled my rice and milked my cows. And I'm living together with my fellows on the banks of the river. My home is covered, the fire is kindled. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha responds, I'm free from anger, free from stubbornness. I'm abiding but one night on the banks of the Mahi River. My house is uncovered. The fire of craving is extinguished. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And then the herdsman goes on, gadflies are not found with me, the meadows abound with grass, the cows are roaming, they can endure the rain, so therefore if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha replies, by me is made a well-constructed raft to pass over the torrent of water to liberation, have reached the further shore, there's no use for the raft, all things are at peace, therefore if thou like rain, O sky. And the herdsman goes on, trying to top that. My wife is obedient, he says. Remember, this is a different time and culture. <laughs> My wife is obedient. For a long time she has been living together with me. She is winning. I hear nothing evil of her. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha looks back and says, My mind is obedient. <laughs> Delivered from all the entanglements of the world. For a long time it has been highly cultivated. Subdued, wise, there is no longer anything unskillful in me, therefore, of the like rain, O sky. And so you get this sense of the poetry of someone meeting another being saying, it may be fine that the cows are good and your fire is kindled and all those are fine things, but there is a freedom even bigger than anything you've imagined yet. And inviting that person to understand it. Sometimes also the teachings are in a very, very simple language, again, from the Sutta Napata, from these very earliest teachings, the most archaic. And here's the Buddha with some people coming to say, what is it that you actually teach? And he says in response, this I declare after investigation in all the philosophies and doctrines and views, there is none that such a liberated heart as, as this would embrace, 
seeing misery in taking a stand in any view or opinion. I have abandoned them without adopting any other and rest in inward peace. Not by any view or the absence of any view can this liberation said to exist. Not by opinion or knowledge or virtue or the absence of it. For one who thinks themselves higher or lower or equal to another person is still caught in the notions of one and another. But for one who is freed, who abandons even the notions of higher, lower, and equal, for these, for one whom these do not exist, who could say this is true or false? How could they enter into an argument with such a one? Let the sage not dispute, embracing any views whatsoever, but rest in peace in this world. Those who are accomplished are liberated and not arrogant. They are not to be led into all of the entanglements and resting places, of the entanglements that, that trap or, or, or cause the mind to be stuck. For some, one who is free from these views, there are no ties. They move through the world like a bird through space, unbounded. So you get these very early teachings where the Buddha is saying, you can be free, not by some philosophy or view, but in your own being. And then they start to change, actually. And you notice that they don't last so long in the old text. After that, he starts doing the Eightfold Path, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the... Um, five spiritual faculties, all the numbers. It's almost like he said, wake up, it's possible to be free. And people were saying, duh, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, is there some way to, how do you do it? They didn't get it. So he said, all right, if you don't understand, then here are the steps. Awareness of the body, awareness of the breath, awareness of feelings, awareness of mind, awareness of the space within which all of that arises and passes. And yet underneath this, the truth is that they are all pointing to a reality that is who we are. They're pointings to help us let go of the small sense of self. The Buddha generally taught about no self, selflessness, getting beyond this sense of separate self. But I remember when my teacher Ajahn Chah, we were in the forest monastery, and he was looking at us and teaching, and he said, self is untrue. The whole sense you have of yourself is untrue. That's fine. That's sort of standard Buddhist line. Then he looked up and he said, no self is also untrue. <laughs> Which is it? Then what? Or he would look at us and he'd say, can you discover the place where there is no going forward, no moving backward, and no standing still? Where's that place? Live in that place and you will be free. The common mistake is to think that it's someplace other than where we are, that we're going to get to the eternal after some time, or that nirvana is someplace else, the absolute. That's the absolute, and this is the relative, you know, the dirty world of bodies and um, carpools and, you know, <laughs> traffic and shopping and so forth. And then there's this little poem by Basho, the great Zen master, when he went to the most ancient and beautiful city in Japan filled with temples, Kyoto, and he penned these lines. 
Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. Being where we are, there arises, this isn't, this isn't enough, there must be something more. And the invitation of meditation, as we sat tonight, of the Buddha's practice of awakening, for you to sit as a Buddha, is to discover that just where we are is found what the Buddha found. Awakening, liberation from all views and opinions and entanglements, a freedom of the heart, and with it a tremendous sense of compassion because we step from the small sense of self, from the body of fear, into that living reality that brings joy and connectedness. And mystics and sages in every tradition, shamans, speak of this. So I hope that Stephen can speak of it a little bit. This is a setup for you. (laughs) And I'd be interested to hear how Nagarjuna relates, um, or what you found in Nagarjuna's teaching, that relates to how we actually can live with freedom. How can we live mm. with compassion from Nagarjuna? So that's some words to uh, launch you, so to speak. Thank you very much. Uh, that one of the terms that Jack did not use in his very succinct summary and account of the Buddha's teaching and practice was the word emptiness. And emptiness is perhaps the key term for Nagarjuna, a term that I think for many of us today is, is often rather uncomfortable. In the West, we, we tend not to think of emptiness as uh, something we would particularly desire. It's often thought of as a... As a if some, somebody says, my life is feeling very empty, we, d- we don't normally regard this as a, as a statement of spiritual achievement. <laughs> so consequently, when we find this word shunyata in the Buddhist tradition, there's a temptation to find um, another way of expressing it. And I remember one translator translated it as, as the open dimension of being. <coughs> which sounds wonderful. Alternatively, I've myself experimented with substituting the word transparency for emptiness, which I think also is suggestive of the kind of experience that emptiness is speaking of, one that that doesn't just negate or eliminate our experience, but allows us, as it were, to see through it in both senses of the word. If you, see th- if you see through someone, you're no longer tricked or deceived by them. But to see through is also to realize that you can see something and at the same time see what is beyond it or what constitutes it. But nonetheless, in, in this translation, I have chosen to remain with the term emptiness because that is quite literally what the word in Sanskrit means. And we, what is also striking in in Nagarjuna, which was written, he was writing uh, about 1800 years ago, about 200 years after Christ. And even then, he has to defend himself against criticisms um, about the word emptiness. Uh, His contemporaries were likewise feeling that this is a rather a rather negative sort of idea. This is going to undermine what we value and believe in. 
And Nagarjuna has to make considerable effort, really, to, um, uh, to, to, to show how this emptying out is not a denial of life, but actually it is the doorway into a richer and fuller life. And for this reason, I think emptiness is rather unsettling as a term, uh, disquieting perhaps, even slightly threatening. And I think it was always intended to be such. I don't feel it was meant to, to console us or offer us something rather spiritual and sacred to, uh, to fantasize about, but it's rather a term designed to stop us in our tracks and, and make us really confront, perhaps, the opposite of emptiness. In other words, our sense of being rather too full of ourselves, rather too um, locked into fixed ideas and opinions and views that render our life very unempty. In other words, it's full of stuff, and it's that fullness of stuff that rather gets in the way of the kind of freedom that Jack was speaking about. It's also very easy to think of emptiness or awakening or nirvana or anything as some kind of state, some kind of way of being or mode of being that is beyond our immediate apprehension that somehow lies either at the end of a long path or perhaps as some sort of deep mystical reality that un underpins our ordinary existence. But Nagarjuna is extremely suspicious of any such thinking. <coughs> there's a, <coughs> there's a, um, a very well-known verse in which he says, emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, 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 the interesting point here is he understands emptiness certainly not as a state or even an object that one might, if one's meditation goes well enough, come to understand something that one suddenly glimpses or, or uh, grasps. But rather, emptiness is actually a kind of letting go. It's really rather more an emptying rather than an emptiness. It is, the, it is the letting go of fixed ideas, of opinions, of beliefs, of views, all of those things that we are often very, very deeply invested in, precisely in order to secure the sense of our own isolation, our own individuality, our own difference, uh, something that we are desperately uh, uh, keen to preserve in as a kind of protection against the, the very impermanent, changing, shifting, unreliable, <coughs> unpredictable reality which, which, which we inhabit. So the idea of emptiness as, some, as a letting go, and also the idea that if you take hold of emptiness into some kind of, uh, make it into a religious icon of some kind, that that actually has the opposite effect to what the term is meant to, to suggest. Elsewhere, Nagarjuna uh, compares emptiness to um, a snake. He says those who, uh, that emptiness injures the unintelligent like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. In other words, if one, 
it, it, it's, it's a somehow dangerous idea. It is a, it's an unsettling idea. It's also very easy to get it wrong, but one can so readily latch onto it as a, an alternative for, for God or whatever, rather than recognizing it as a cipher or a key to liberation. If you pick up a dangerous snake in the wrong way, then you're liable to be very severely injured. Likewise, if you misapprehend this idea, emptiness, you can actually cause yourself more, more damage by misconstruing it, then you may be able to find liberation through getting what it's about. But perhaps the notion that, that I found the most striking in studying Nagarjuna was his equivalence of emptiness with the middle way. Um, he declares at one point that, that emptiness is the middle way. And when I first read that, I found that a very puzzling comment. But I've thought about this for quite some time, and the more I think about it, the more I find it illuminates not only what we mean by <coughs> emptiness, but also what we mean by the middle way. And I'd like just to offer a few reflections on the very notion of, of the way. Jack was saying how after the Buddha's awakening he then went out to communicate and to teach and to disclose what he'd understood. And the very first words of the very first discourse given in the Deer Park in Sarnath are more or less to this effect, um, I have discovered the middle way between the extremes of indulgence and mortification. So the notion of the middle way heralds the very beginning of the Buddha's teaching career, as it were, and becomes, I think, even for people who know nothing about Buddhism, probably the term that one can most readily identify as the Buddha's path, that of the middle way. Now. The word way is marga <coughs> in Sanskrit, and it's simply the, the everyday word for a path, or a trail, or a road, or a street. It doesn't, um, it, 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 it is a, it's taking a very ordinary experience, and remember, if we cast ourselves back into the time of the Buddha, we wouldn't have had big highways and so on. The world would have been crisscrossed with small trails and tracks and paths, some larger, some smaller. The same is true, of course, in Taoism. And the Tao in China, which was being articulated more or less at the same time as the Buddha was teaching in India, the Tao also is the ordinary Chinese word for a path or a road or a street or a trail. Um, but often we forget this, and we elevate notions of, of, of the way, of the Tao, to something a little bit more exotic and refined. I remember in my own case, um, having lived in Korea, um, I didn't particularly want to study the Chinese characters, but I did pick up a few, one of which was the character Tao, uh, or way. And th this one I could recognize when I saw it amongst the bewildering mass of many others. And I remember on a brief trip I made back to the West, I was in Hong Kong for some days. 
And I was standing at a street corner and, and rather abstractedly looking at the, the sign on the corner of the street. And I noticed, lo and behold, a Chinese character I recognized, Dao. <laughs> but it really puzzled me as to what it was doing on a street sign until I looked below to the English translation which said Prince Edward Street. Dao was just street. There is also, there is a Zen koan uh, that concerns the Chinese Zen master Chao Chu, where someone, and I'm going to paraphrase this, uh, a monk comes to him and says, please, please, show me the way, show me the way. And Chao Chu says, well, go out to the door, turn left, it's the second on the right. <laughs> or words to that effect. <laughs> But if we think about a path, and again, I'd like to just reflect on this with, 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 with you. A path is a metaphor. It's a, it's a term we use all the time. People talk endlessly now of looking for a spiritual path or following a spiritual path or being on a spiritual path. But what does that actually mean? We use this word so casually that I think we often forget what in fact the experience of being on a path is. <coughs> and I remember once when I was walking close to where I live in England, a, along a, 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 what's called the coastal path in South Devon, and suddenly being struck, all of a sudden I made a connection between the path I was actually walking on and the path as a metaphor, the path which I'm endlessly thinking about as the Middle Way or the Tao or the Way of the Buddha or whatever. And it suddenly struck me what the two had in common. Um, we don't have time to go into enormous detail here, but the, the, but the key element is the recognition that the path, a path, is an emptiness. It is a cleared space. When we think of path, when we, we, we bring the notion of path to our mind's eye, we might have the impression that it's something that's almost overlaid on the landscape. If you look out at the hills there, you can see paths snaking up the hillside. When you look into um, uh, you know, an open prairie or something and see a path across it, it doesn't seem to be a negation. It seems to be something that stands out almost uh, in its own right as, as something. But when you look closer at a path, you recognize that it is actually nothing but the removal of what hinders obstruction, or what hinders movement, I'm sorry. It's the clearing away of, in this, if you think of the paths in the hills around here, it's simply those places where the grass and the boulders and the rocks and bits of trees and brambles and severe ravines and so on um, have been removed or have been bridged so that a path is, a, is, is, is what is a clearing away of something that enables us to then be able to move. So the experience of, of walking a path is, is distinct because it enables us to move freely. A path enables us to establish a certain rhythm and pace and momentum whereby we can find our, our wind, we can move, we can enjoy that movement, we feel freed up. And yet when we lose a path, 
when we're in the wilderness, for example, and suddenly we discover that the path has vanished, it was there a moment ago, where is it now? <laughs> I'm sure you've all had this experience. The, it's interesting to notice how suddenly our experience changes from being able to move almost effortlessly through this landscape into a situation where we're struggling to make any progress at all sometimes. Not only have we lost our sense of direction, we also have lost the ability to really establish a rhythm or a pace. We're now having to stumble over thickets of trees and bushes and so on. We're having to negotiate rocks. We're finding ourselves at the edge of a cliff that can't be negotiated and so forth. When we find a path again, suddenly, of course, we stumble across it, then, once more, we find that freedom to move. So I think when we speak of a path, when we speak of emptiness as a path, then we're picking up very much on a very central defining feature of a path, namely the absence of obstruction, the freedom to move. And this, of course, in the non-metaphorical sense in terms of a spiritual practice or life suggests that when one is engaged in such a practice that the very letting go of, of fixed opinions, fixed ideas, and remember Buddhism speaks a great deal in the similar metaphor of, of hindrances, obstacles, obstructions, in in, in, in modern contemporary parlance, we sometimes describe ourselves as feeling stuck, blocked. I don't feel my life is really going anywhere. That we have many, many metaphors that suggest, uh, suggest obstruction and blockage. Emptiness, in the way Nagarjuna uses it, in the way the Buddha uses it, is describing a way of being in the world in which we are discovering the possibility of being able to move freely through life. In other words, emptiness is not about removing um, some, some metaphysical delusion that gives us a glimpse of a um, transcendent reality, but rather it is removing those, uh, those obstructions, those blockages, those hang-ups, those tightnesses, those um, uh, hindrances that prevent us from actually living, from actually expressing ourselves, fulfilling ourselves, moving through the landscape of our day-to-day -day life, not in a kind of frustrated and awkward and hesitant way, but one in which we feel that something flows. So emptiness, I feel, is very much a suggestion of this freedom of movement, much in the same way as a path allows us a freedom of movement. But the Buddha didn't just talk about the way or the path, he talked about the middle path, the s which could also be translated as the central path, uh, this term, uh, the center. That a person who, who understands emptiness, who lives in emptiness, is one who, as it were, is also centered. That there's a a process of emptying which is also a centering. And this centering is not only about avoiding excess on the one hand and self-denial and self-punishment on the other, 
But the notion of this central path, as, as, as Buddhist thought uh, develops, also becomes a very subtle and refined process of avoiding any kind of tendency towards fixation, either about being someone or trying to be no one. It's about negotiating the dualities of, our, of the grammar of our language. The fact that whenever we speak, whenever we evaluate something, we talk in terms of, of good and bad, or strong and weak, or male and female, or whatever it might be. Not that these terms are, are, are in any way uh, wrong. I mean, they're simply what language uses to work. But the danger is that we, we, uh, we isolate a term such as, as, as self, for example, uh, and make a kind of big issue out of it. We become very invested in that idea. And as Jack was saying, the opposite would be to then become good, practicing, devout Buddhists and build a similar kind of investment into a notion like non-self and then become very um, attached to that. Um, as Nagarjuna says repeatedly in his poems, um, the path of emptiness steers a course between the extremes of self and non-self. There's one passage where he even goes to, so far as to say it steers an extreme, it steers a path between the extremes of emptiness and not emptiness. It steers a path between the extremes of permanence and impermanence, which again for some Buddhists sounds perhaps rather shocking. But there's a, th there is a quality in, in Nagarjuna's uh, poetry, and I treat it as poetry rather than philosophy, that I feel is in a sense of a person who is speaking or giving voice to this experience of the free movement through life from within. I feel that he's articulating emptiness as an experience and in doing so is struggling to find an appropriate language. And at the core of his work there lies, I feel, a deep poetic sense. And it's in poetry that we not only, we, 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 we find a language that does not simply give us a description of, in this case, say, emptiness, or in another context it might be nightingales, but rather poetry works by being able almost to, 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 to enter into that which it then gives voice to. So when you read about Keats's nightingale, you're not reading a biological text about nightingales, but you're somehow getting inside the experience of, in this case, someone listening to a nightingale, and in some way saying something about the nightingale itself. Buddhist philosophy has spent enormous volumes and, um, and, and, and a theory and criticism and so on in trying to philosophically define emptiness. And some of this material is very, very useful. It clarifies our thinking. But often at the expense of losing touch with the actual lived experience of emptiness. So what I've tried to do in my translation is to bring back, to, re to, to recapture that sense of emptiness somehow being articulated in the very rhythms of the language itself. 
Now, having said all of that, I guess I have to prove my point by reading some of it. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read... Um, how much time do we have? 25 minutes, still quarter. 25 minutes? <laughs> 20 minutes. No, but that's... We're going to... I'm going to conclude with, the, w w with, with yeah. this. <coughs> uh, this is a poem called... Um, or this is a... Yeah, this, uh, this one is called Connection. Uh, connection. I, the beholder, the one I behold, the beholding itself, do not connect with one another, just as I who desire, the one I desire, the desiring itself, do not connect. We do not connect because we are not apart from one another. We would not be together if we were apart. I am other than you in relation to you. I could not be your other without you. Were I other than you, then even without you I would be someone else. I cannot be your other without you. There is no otherness in either you or me. Without otherness there is no me or you. I do not connect with me, nor do I connect with you. No connecting, no connections, no connectors. <laughs> so, um... Now this, if you were to compare this with a more academic <laughs> translation, you might have trouble <laughs> recognizing that it's the same text. But um, that's another story. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, I think that's a good point on which to conclude my part of this presentation. And um, Jack, where do we go from here? <laughs> we could take some... Um. We could take some questions. I, I want to ask you to read at least one more. Come on. Come on, pick another one. Another one. Yeah. One that connects. You know. one, that <laughs> one that ties it all up. One that ties it all up. Okay, I'll read the... Um, I'll read one. This one's called Self. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I was something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, Compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. <coughs> Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Buddha said, it is real, and it is unreal, and it is both real and unreal, and it is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixatable by fixations, incommunicable, inconceivable, indivisible. 
You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. You use the word ease there, mm -hmm. which I guess you use other places. Um, this, there's a kind of a, a very real question for people who are undertaking meditation mm. of how to walk this path wisely and what does it mean to be at ease and what does it mean to walk still or to, to mm -hmm. intend or to make wise effort and so forth. Do you have anything to um, illuminate mm -hmm. that word ease? Ease. Um, I'm translating ease um, as ease is my translation for the, the Sanskrit word shanti, peace. And the, the problem here, and I'm working from Tibetan, so I'm perhaps um, alert to this in a way that a Sanskritist may not be. But the problem with the word shanti, or in Tibetan the word shiwa, is that it can be used as both a verb and a noun. Now, if I were to translate shanti as peace, which is okay, I would find it difficult to find a verbal equivalent that would capture the same sense. I'd have to say something like pacify, which is quite wrong. I find the word ease, not only is it short and precise, but it functions equally well as a noun and a verb. So one can, one can ease fixations, and one can be at ease, one can experience ease, the key, it's a very key term in Nagarjuna. In the very opening homage, he says, I bow to Buddhas who teach contingency and ease fixations. Now, the easing of fixations, that is nirvana. So again, we get this idea, as I mentioned before, the relinquishing of opinions is another way of saying emptiness. The easing of fixations is another way of saying nirvana. But for, for Nagarjuna, nirvana and emptiness become the same. This, and both of them are understood as ways of being in the world, rather than as states of transcendence to which we can somehow go beyond the world. It's, very, it's, very, it's extremely, extremely explicit with Nagarjuna. Um, when he's talking about the Buddha nature, for example, he says, and this is the last bit, the last two verses, well, the last verse, it says, Buddha nature is the nature of this world. Buddha nature has no nature, nor does this world. There's, um, the ease, I feel, is, is, is a, I, to me, it's a word that's much more resonant with our experience now. We all know, we all know more or less what it's like to be at ease. And I think it's, an imp it's something that sometimes gets forgotten when we start meditation practice and start putting an awful lot of effort into it and becoming, as a consequence, rather stressed, rather tense, rather tight. And it's reminding us, I think, that the kind of wisdom, compassion, these qualities that the Buddhists speak of, are arrived at in a way through letting go, through allowing ourselves to be profoundly 
at ease with ourselves, at ease with the world, not in a way in which we just lie back and ignore injustice and suffering and so forth, but in such a way that we can open to that experience far more fully, in such a way that we can then respond to it from, again, a spaciousness rather than an opinionatedness. Questions? Please. I, I Mm -hmm. Repeat the question. The question is, could I elaborate a bit on the word contingency, which the questioner has noticed I use in my book? Contingency is my translation of Paticca Samudpada. Oh. <laughs> 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 Paticca Samudpada is usually rendered in such neat poetic expressions as codependent emergence oh. or dependent origination. <laughs> Um, because I chose to see Nagarjuna as a poet, I was also then, as soon as I made that decision, committed to finding simple, um, clear-cut and poetic-sounding words. I had as much concern with finding the word that sounded right as I did a word that was technically exact. Contingency, um, the, the, the notion of contingency that um, or the person who woke me up to, the, to this term contingency is, was the American philosopher Richard Rorty, who wrote a book called uh, Contingency, Irony and Solidarity, which if you haven't read it, it's, is, is, it's a wonderfully accessible book. And he has a whole chapter there on the contingency of self, which could be straight out of a Buddhist text, except it's not informed in any way by Buddh Buddhist ideas, as far as one can tell. And yet it, to me, captures very well the Buddhist idea that everything that comes into being does so contingently upon a complex of myriad conditions, both previous causes that have historically brought it into being, as well as all of those factors that constitute it, that are its parts and so forth, and also contingent upon culture, upon language, terms of description, definitions and so on. So contingency is to me a very, uh, is a very neat, tidy word that captures this sense of reality as a kind of continuously dancing play of events that miraculously coheres in living organisms, which again, if we, we don't need to look to Buddhism to understand this. We simply need to look into biology to see how this human body, for example, is constituted out of this extraordinary complex um, series of processes and events that generate the feeling of being me. Uh, it's utterly contingent. There's no essential me that is lying in the heart of myself somewhere that, uh, that, that somehow legitimates the feeling I have of being Stephen. But Stephen emerges contingently out of all of these pre-existent and coexisting factors that generate this moment of being the person I think I am. Let me ask you something um, 
perhaps as a follow-up or connected. When people come to meditation practice, and certainly in the, a, a number of the early years of offering retreats 20, 25 years ago, um, there was um, commonly among us a kind of striving either to be empty or to be free of certain experiences. Mm -hmm. And with it, a kind of self-judgment that mm -hmm. also came in, that we're not okay, and if we meditate right, we can clean ourselves up and purify ourselves and make ourselves okay. And then over some time, there came an evolution of um, understanding that included um, the element of compassion or loving-kindness. Mm -hmm. That until one is in a compassionate relationship with what arises in this human form, in this life, we are fighting against ourselves. We've lost the middle way, so to speak, and we're in struggle. How does Nagarjuna teach compassion? Mm -hmm. Does he? And how does he speak to that need in, in our mm -hmm. practice? Um, the, the word compassion, or actually love, med, metta, occurs just once in the text. Um, it is primarily a document, it is a teaching of freedom. And as such, it doesn't go, great, doesn't go into great detail uh, into areas such as morality and compassion. Um, I mean, all he says actually is, uh, he said, Buddha taught that acts and motives of the mind and words and gestures you are moved to express. Restraining yourself and loving others are seeds that bear fruit in this life and beyond. Are, are what? Seeds that bear, that fruit bear fruit in this life and beyond. Um, I think we have to, in the introduction to this book though, I do um, trace how Nagarjuna's idea of emptiness is then becomes the doorway to compassion. And the, I think the, the, the way in which one can summarize this is that if we think of an experience of, of not being empty, let's say, of being rather fixated around the ego or the self, then we're not just holding on to this for the sake of um, feeling secure, but I think we also hold on to ourselves in this way as a kind of defense against the suffering of the world. It gives us a kind of protection, a kind of armoring against um, the enormity of, 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 of pain, of um, distress, of grief um, that is all around us all the time. And as a consequence of experiencing and living emptiness, living in a way in which we empty ourselves of such opinions and fixations. Again, it's not a matter that we suddenly gain some great mystical liberation, but simultaneously there is an affective dimension to that, an emotional dimension to that, in that we also become, as it were, more vulnerable. That by by dropping, by relinquishing opinions, is also about relinquishing that defense mechanism we have against suffering. And in, in opening ourselves up this way, we become uh, more sen sensitive, more uh, in touch with, and perhaps even more pained by the experience of not our own, own, only our own dissatisfactions and so on, but this, the pains and sufferings of the world, of others. 
So emptiness is not a way out of feeling, it's actually a way into feeling. And it may not make our life any easier. <laughs> it might actually, in fact I think it inevitably will, um, bring the question of what it means to live in this world into sharper and sharper focus. And that won't just be an intellectual concern, but it will be an almost intolerable sense of, of the pains and the sufferings that are around us. So that's, I think, how the two go together. I mean, my own conviction is that the, 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 the core teaching of the Buddha uh, rests in this convergence of, of wisdom and compassion. The, the, the insights one gain are only really genuine, I feel, when they are um, simultaneously um, an emotional response. Um, the two, I feel, are not are, are utterly in, in, in an, um, are utterly inseparable. How would you practice Nagarjuna's way while living? In, in uh, living what? In Marin. In Marin, yeah, living in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> in San Francisco particularly. Yes. Well, I think, we I, don't, I don't think there would be any difference wherever one was. It would be, it, it's a commitment to, on the one hand, um, becoming aware of what it is that blocks or um, hinders one's sense of, um, of what one could, of what is humanly possible. Um, it, is a, it is a rigorous critique of one's own attachments, opinions, views, and through mindfulness, through awareness, through simply becoming more attentive to life as an ongoing process, rather than a, a fixed state, allowing oneself to take the, the risk of letting go, the, the, the risk of, of dropping what might have always felt to be so, so central to one's identity. And in that process, then moving out into the world, I don't think there's any pre... Nagarjuna doesn't offer a plan, a life plan, uh, a series of steps that will somehow sort oneself out. But all he offers is a... Is, is a Diet and a series of exercises, <laughs> therapy. <laughs> He's not concerned with that. He's concerned with, 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 with illuminating uh, what he would consider be, to be the primary block to a free and compassionate life. And if one can somehow grasp that message, I feel that um, that could be a, a, a foundation, perhaps, for living in San Francisco or in Devon, England, or wherever. Um, yeah. Just one, yes. one question. Mm. Yeah. I, I think what I, what I thought I heard Jack getting at in the question before was the role of compassion mm. in that illumination. I understand at least conceptually mm. the, the resulting mm. compassion from the mm. illumination, but the role of it. What's the role of compassion in that illumination? In, in the coming, in, mm. in, in, in the birthing of that illumination. Well, again, I don't know whether the need be, as it were, some kind of fixed definition of what everyone must do to get to such illumination. I, I feel that the, 
the, uh, the, the path that we follow, each of us, is going to stem from the particular way we, we, uh, we articulate the, the question of our lives, the question that our life presents to us. Now, for some people, that question will carry with it very explicitly questions of such as, what can I do in this world? For others, um, perhaps of a more, uh, more philo philosophic bent, they would be more driven by questions of, what does it mean? And I feel that the process of the path has to spring from the authenticity of the way in which your life presents itself to you as a question. And to follow that question, not to, um, to cover it up or substitute it with a set of, of beliefs or, or, or views that give you some solace, but actually numb the intensity of that primary perplexity. So if one's practice emerges from and actually seeks to sustain this questioning, then we begin to trace a path, we follow a path that's um, that really is a response to that question. And for some people, I think the issues of compassion and love will come about perhaps right from the outset as, 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 as essential to their questioning. Uh, for others, it may be that uh, a rather more solitary approach then leads to an increasing opening of the heart and the feelings and the emotions and perhaps culminates in in a, a more compassionate way of being in the world. Um, but I, I'm reluctant to try to sort of define the path as having specific stages, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and that's the only way to go. Um, we've just about come to the end of our path here tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, when I listen, I also hear, in the contemporary way, I hear uh, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi speaking of beginner's mind, of mm -hmm. having that kind of openness that sees things freshly mm -hmm. rather than with the, the plan and the history mm -hmm. kind of attached to things. Or I hear the way of the Tao, and the Tao speaking of water that um, is both the soft, of, softest of things and yet able mm -hmm. to wear through the hardest. And mm -hmm. it's somehow that there's some echo of the the world wisdom in mm -hmm. what you speak of from Nagarjuna, that's mm -hmm. not Buddhist but mm -hmm. would be shamanic and, you know, found uh, among the, the elders and the wise mm -hmm. in every culture who have found the clearing in the way and know how mm -hmm. to move through life with some ease. So again, I thank you, um, Stephen, for coming and um, also for offering this translation. And, turning what was, I have to say, some of the most dry and philosophical and dense uh, language that you could imagine um, into poetry again, um, kind of redeeming, you know, that and, and giving Nagarjuna his poetic voice back. Um, I'm grateful for that and that you could come and be here, and I hope you come back to Spirit Rock to do some teaching in the future.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.